Welcome to a special crossover episode of the Action Research Podcast. You're listening to part two of a conversation between the co-hosts of the Action Research Podcast, Dr. Joe Levitan and PhD candidate Adam Stieglitz, and Dr. Linnea Rademacher, host of Action Research Global Conversations. If you missed part one, check out episode 13 of the Action Research Podcast to get caught up. Adam, Joe, and Linnea were talking about the intersections and nuances of action research, popular education, and leadership. Let's pick up where they left off. How can we utilize popular education and action research in the 21st century to further leadership studies in order to develop leaders who can co-create knowledge that is practitioner-focused, context-dependent, and stakeholder-inclusive? So I think we've been talking about that question yeah. and, and addressing it in, in various ways, because it's not a question that can be answered in a few sentences or even a few paragraphs. Mm-hmm. It's a question that has to be answered through living it, I think. And yeah. I think this conversation helps think through the ways to live it. And then the second question is, and I'm quoting, how can we expand our ways of knowing, Eisner 1985, to include and value multiple forms of knowing as representations of new knowledge and new contexts? So Hall and Tandon, 2015. And I think that those two questions, that's really what we've been talking about. And we're not going to answer them definitively, but I think we've been making progress in terms of how to live some of these questions. And I think that's really the key. But I want to switch gears a little bit and start talking about your role as a leader, since we've been talking about leadership, popular education, and action research in the American Educational Research Association Special Interest Group in Action Research. And where do you think as these concepts take root as action research grows, you know, that's something that I think Adam and I have been noticing. It's a small but mighty kind of subsect of educational research, health research, nonprofit research, but I think it's growing because people have found it to be efficacious. Where do you see action research going? Where I see it going is it's going. Margaret Ryle has a Facebook group called Action Research Tutorials. She's also a former chair of the Action Research SIG. She started it from her Action Research Tutorials. She wanted to make it free and open access. How do you do action research? And has a website where you can listen to her YouTube videos about doing the different parts. And so she has a group on Facebook. I think there's probably a thousand members now from all over the world. So I saw that, and when I became chair, I thought, you know, I really want to do something to help get knowledge out there. I think one of the problems with action research is, with practitioner research, I'm going to say practitioner, is that practitioner-based research doesn't have the access often to what academics use to get knowledge out there, which is the published peer-reviewed journal. I mean, there are few, but it's very difficult. And many don't have the inclination to do it. You know, I did research with a couple teachers a few years ago. The difficulty for them was they didn't want to write. And when I had the opportunity to write a couple chapters about it for a book on teacher research, you know, I said, oh, I'll do all the writing. You guys just add a little bit here and there because I like to write. 
you know, made sure everything was okay with them. But basically it was their project and I just wanted everybody to know what they did, right? So knowledge dissemination is a huge problem. And I know Lonnie Rao in Arna has talked about this a lot. That's kind of a big deal for him. Knowledge democracy and knowledge dissemination. It's really hard. How do you get the word out there? And so with my students, I talk about for teachers, you can share at a teacher meeting, you can share an area meeting, you can share the, the teachers that I worked with started with their own school professional development session. It went went to the whole district and then it went to the region and then they went to the state. So many people heard about what they did. It was just wonderful, but it's hard. It's hard to know what to do. And so I started the podcast much as, as you did to help people do that. And I entitled it Global Conversations because I want people from all over the globe to talk about what it is they're doing. So far, we've had a lot of academics on there because that's who I know. But, you know, we're hoping to have more people and that this can be another way for people to talk about what they're doing and to get the word out there. Margaret has great success in getting people to give links to their projects. The Social Publishers Foundation, which Lonnie Rell also heads with his wife, Unsuk, they have done great work getting the word out there about action research that's being conducted and they put it out in all the social media outlets and getting the word out there so that we're not as dependent. The problem that you talked about, Adam, with how do you get that recognition? Well, 90% of the time, I, I don't worry about that. I want the word to get out there about what's being done. But the 10% of the time, I think about it because I'm concerned about the rigor of research because research methods is my thing. And I'm concerned that people don't think it's rigorous. Well, that's across the board. I see that all the time. A student will use an article in in their dissertation and I will say, this is not a very good article. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> and we'll talk about the limitations of the methodology, what they did or didn't do, and say, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Even though you think these people are really special because they're published, they're not. They're just like you and me. And so you have to be able to take it apart and look at that value. So I think that there is value in looking at different ways to disseminate knowledge that we've created. Yeah, no, well, I think that it's really relevant considering we're on a podcast talking about action research and we're going to be collaborating between two podcasts on action research and yeah. growing that kind of collaborative dissemination of ideas and knowledge and experiences. It's really relevant. I mean, we're yes. kind of doing the metacognitive work right now, that self-reflection discussion about what is necessary for action research and how are we going to make sure that this approach, this paradigm is accessible to as many people who will find it useful as possible. You know, this invitation, but making sure that people know that they're invited, you know, that's, I think, yes. a really important facet of it. And I think it's part of that feeling safe. Right. Yeah. And, and getting practitioners on to share some of their projects, I think would be really cool. That's a really great idea. So we'll have to collaborate on that too. Speaking personally, having gone through some really, you know, you brought this, you brought up this idea of rigor, some very rigorous research method work. I was at Penn State. I had some really wonderful mentors who were really, really high quality methodologists and researchers that do really cool stuff. There's a lot of anxiety when you are in these spaces where you have to do these different methods and there are ways that you do it and there are ways that you don't do it. And that is true and it needs to be rigorous, right? So action research needs to be rigorous. Qualitative research needs to be rigorous. And there's a lot of research out there that isn't, that's action research or qualitative. Quantitative research, which people assume is rigorous, there's a whole ton of not rigorous. Oh, that's not. Right. <laughs> 
and and knowing how to one deconstruct and, and analyze and critique to see what's rigorous, what you can take out of it, what you shouldn't because of problems with the methodology is really important. And I think it's important when you're in a safe space to be able to do it that way because it doesn't shut people down. So it's, oh, there's an issue here, but you're talking with somebody. So it's not, oh, you're not a good scholar or, oh, this is not worthwhile. It's let's make this better. And I think that's something that action research invites other spaces because of their histories might not invite it as much. But I think that's something that I felt at least with action research, which is people will read your research and, and be very critical of it. And they'll really take like, look at the fine points and say, well, are you really sure this premise works with your methodology? Are you really sure you're being coherent and honest with how you're presenting this? But it's not disregarding you. It's thinking through how to make it better. Right. Hey, Joe, can I ask a follow-up question there? Because, you know, I'm sitting here taking notes, right? As I think about how I'm going to wrap up my own dissertation research and writing. What, what would, let's go back a layer. What would you say are some of the characteristics of a study, I guess, in particular action research or, or qualitative research that, that you would pull out and qualify as making a study rigorous or not? Well, I think the word rigorous is thrown around sometimes, even by myself, vaguely. But I think that people can learn and do scientific research, qual and quant. I think you can do it. Qualitative and quantitative uh, methods are the tools that we use. Action research, I view as the paradigm that it is uh, problem solving from the ground up, whether it's yourself or in collaboration with others. So the rigor part, I look at how did you enact and analyze and draw conclusions from your methods and can I see that in your writing? Can I discern what it is? Or if you're talking, it could be like a, I don't think it has to be written. I think that's just the coin of the round that, that we exist in. But I, I think that you have to be able to talk about how you came to those conclusions and what kind of analysis did you do? And I think it's hard sometimes for novice I think stats is probably easier in that regard, even though people are afraid of math. I think stats is probably easier because there's just tried and true, you have to do this. If you're gonna do a multiple regression, you have to do this. If you're gonna do a quasi-experimental study, you have to do this and there's steps and you do it all and, you know. I think with qualitative, it's it, it seems much more subjective, but we have enough materials to help us be rigorous and to make our results trustworthy and to make our results confirmable. That if someone else looked at the data with our questions would come to similar conclusions. Does that help a little bit? It does, yeah. One of the things that leaves me curious about is the extent to which you consider how change was or might be reached through the study, right? Because we talk about how at the end of the day, action research, one of its most qualifying characteristics is that it's intended to create some sort of social change. Now, I know that that often doesn't happen in, in through the duration of a single study or in the short term. But, you know, I hear when I hear us talking about rigor, we talk about, you know, quality of data and how analysis connects with findings and if the methodology is sound. But I don't hear us talking about the change element. You know, is that something that you consider when? when yes, of course, because and, and I'll give you the example of the teachers that I worked with. My my good friend was one of the, the teachers that I worked with, and she was a special ed teacher. And she and her colleagues' perceptions of good research was that it was quantitative, right? And so they had, 
you know, 23 children, 22 children in the class. And in my head, I'm going, well, there's not really much you can do quantitatively. And especially since my one friend's students were special ed students, they were pull out and push in, which is our terms in special ed where you pull them out for special instruction on things and you push in as an aide, you come into the classroom and you work with the students. And so as we, as I suspected, the quantitative data didn't show much. She had eight special ed students and we were sitting talking about data analysis and I was gently trying to explain this, but I said, tell me about each of these students. And my friend went on for about an hour talking about the changes she had seen in the students. It was a, a reading program, right? And so she had a variety of students with disabilities range from traumatic brain injury to just functionally, mentally capacitated just from birth and different disabilities in between there, physical and mental disabilities, learning disabilities, autism, all of that. So she had these eight students. There's no way you're going to get a quantitative result out of there. But what she did get was qualitative change that she described. And so I encouraged her, you need to write up a portrait of each of these students and what you saw before. So there was a student before that had, she had a, a, a terminal illness and it affected her uh, mental capacities. And she was unable to make a lot of progress academically from what the school, you know, we have all these school things that we have to do and meet these criteria. And the student was just beaten down. The student was not wanting to try, not wanting to go to school. With this intervention that my friend did, the student was finding success because of the intervention, even though they were small, but it measured the success on very smaller levels, enough to give the student greater self-confidence and wanting to keep going, motivation to keep going. So she wrote about the changes for all these students. It was so impactful that these are the two teachers that presented to the school and then went on to the district and the region and the state. It was completely impactful and completely told about the changes that occurred in these students, even though they were qualitative, not quantitative changes. Is that kind of what you were asking me? Yeah, no, and it's great to hear you say that. You know, I wish that there was more of that angle of appreciation in academia, you know, because it would have been so easy to just knock that as a quantitative study that didn't have enough data and therefore it's not empirical and close the books on it or push it to the side, you know, and I don't know, yeah, to me, I mean, I, I, that's what it should be about. If we're putting all the time be. towards yeah. research, you know, and I mean, academia is such a brain trust. And if we're not able to really take a human stance at the work that we're doing, you know, yes. and really see how it, how it is affecting those that are around us and outside of the academy. Like to me, it wouldn't even, it's not worth it, you know? And I think that's why, well, I agree. why I'm such an I advocate. I agree, but I think, I think the coin of the realm is often in that APA correctly formatted article that we write for a primary peer review journal. They were never going to do that. She had so much more data than she thought she could use. She had the quantitative data, but she was keeping field notes on these students through the entire project. And that's how we crafted and really showed a trajectory of how these students had changed. She had the data. She just didn't think it was valuable because that's the way she was raised to think, right? That only those numbers are valuable. We have to make space for that and 
and celebrate that and show people. I mean, I hear it in my methods courses all the time. I don't know if you you ever hear this, Joe, when you're teaching, but students will come in, well, I really want to do a quant study, but I'm not that good at it. So I'm going to do a qual study as if it's easier. Right. I hear that all <laughs> the time. Yep. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> let me tell you how long it took me to, to write up my dissertation. <laughs> I've been thinking about that recently as I go back and begin to transcribe like a dozen interviews in a second language. Like, why aren't I just plugging numbers into an app and like within yeah. 20 minutes having my results? Yeah. yeah, I had 16 <laughs> interviews. I had dozens of hours of observations of the organization and four hours of field notes of board meetings. And then I had 200 pages of documents from the organization. So it's a lot of data. And to make sense of that, to make sense of of this mountain is daunting. Yeah, absolutely. I hear that all the time. And, and and then their questions are, you know, and I take a very pragmatic approach to research methods and methodology. So it's really based on if they are practitioners reflecting on their research, what the problem is and thinking about the problem and asking a question about the problem. But if they're people who are PhD students thinking about their research question, what is it that they're asking? And that's what's going to drive the method and methodology. But right. but a lot of people, instead of thinking about it that way, think about, oh, well, I think I could do, you know, I, I can read and I can write. So I might as well do qualitative because numbers scare me. And you're like, no, that's not how it works. And also yeah. conceptually, if you are, you know, like you said, more type A, conceptually, quantitative research makes a lot more sense to some people. And qualitative research makes a lot more sense to other people. And both of those research paradigms can offer really great insights into a phenomena or an activity. And one of the things that I really like about action research is that it allows you to do all of that. You can do both. Yeah. Yep, you can do you both. Can do all of it. Although I don't recommend that in a dissertation. You want to no. get done. No. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. So this has been such a rich, wonderful conversation. It's been such a slice getting to know you and chat with you. I think we're kind of getting towards the end of the pod. I have one more like kind of concluding question. It's a real simple one, but it's I kind of our listeners in mind who we want our listeners hopefully to be, you know, practitioners and, and, and scholars, but also students, particularly graduate students. So one last question, based on your experience and you, you teach research methods and you've written so much about such like profound issues in action research, what would you say to a graduate student who's in their first year of a doc program taking, starting to take methodology courses and they're considering what methodology to use and they're thinking about action research? Do you have advice for them or what would you say to them if they came into your office hours and said, Linnea, I'm thinking about action research. I'm not sure if it's for me. What do you think? Well, I agree with Joe, meaning that I want to know what the problem is first that, that they're interested in. Because the problem and what's been done before and what questions they have, what research questions they are interested in is going to drive the method. But if they've thought about that and they're seriously thinking about action research, I'm all for it but I want them to be completely go into it open-mindedly. And so I want them to read. I want them to read copiously. I want them to read not only action research studies, but I want them to read different viewpoints of action research. Ernie Stringer, Craig Mertler, you know, get into the any of the handbooks that are out there. There's the handbook on action research. I'm terrible at names. I told you this. The, the Sage Handbook of Action Research, which is 
more practitioner organizational based versus the SAGE Handbook of Action Research and Education, which is all in education, you know, read things about participatory action research, read things about collaborative action research, read things about teacher action research, you know, read, 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 read. And now we can listen to podcasts, listen to the podcast, listen to YouTube videos, go to Margaret's. I mean, that's a great place to start. Go to Margaret's YouTube videos on step-by-step action research and, and see what other people are doing. Go to the Social Publishers Foundation's website and read about some of the projects that they've supported and published, because these are the people that are out there doing it in the real world. It's not just in primary peer-reviewed literature. In fact, it's hard to find stuff that's published in primary peer-reviewed literature. It's hard because of, of the practitioner-based nature of it. So broaden your horizons, and I point them to all these different things. Sounds like pretty pretty sound advice to me. What do you think, Dr. Levitan? Sounds good to me, too. Really think that's the advice that we should leave off on. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Listen to the Action Research Global Conversations podcast, which you can find on most podcast platforms as well as ours. And this has just been such a slice, like I said. So thanks again for taking the time to come on and chat. Thanks for listening to this special crossover episode between the Action Research podcast and Action Research Global Conversations. You can subscribe to both podcasts on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We hope to continue building bridges and sharing conversations in the field through these kinds of collaborative efforts. As always, we love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, questions, or ideas, reach out to us on Twitter at the underscore ARPod or the Action Research Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.